Water and welcome to Woodhouse Keeping, a show about Woodhouse PG. We take one book and give it a long look, then move on chronologically. Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of Woodhouse Keeping, the podcast where I, Ian Coburn, look at the books of the humorous author P.G. Woodhouse in chronological order. Today's episode is about Love Among the Chickens, Woodhouse's seventh book, his first book for a general audience as opposed to boys or young children, and the first with a love story. It's also the first book with one of his major recurring characters, Eucridge, and also effectively his first golf story. If this means we have any new listeners, you're all very welcome. I must just give you the customary warning that there will be spoilers. We may just let it slip out that the boy gets the girl in the end, for example. I say we because I'm delighted to say I am joined by new guest Tom Robinson for this episode. The H is silent as in haute cuisine. Besides being a writer and educator, Tom is a musician I like very much and I was able to cajole him into recording a piece of music for me to use as the closing theme of this episode. I always imagine that most people will discover these episodes years into the future and binge them all in one go. But if you are one of the faithful few who are listening in real time as they come out, I must apologise for the long wait for this episode. The interview with Tom was recorded ages ago, but I was undone by the triple plague of work, illness and technical difficulties. So, without further ado, I give you Episode 7 of Woodhouse Keeping, Love Among the Chickens. I'm joined by Tom Robinson, writer and lecturer, contributor to the Times Literary Supplement and erstwhile co-host of the excellent podcast Yammer of the Gods. Hello, thank you for having me. When did you first become aware of P.G. Woodhouse? I remember when I was growing up, there was an old Penguin copy of The Inimitable Jeeves in the house, and at some point I gravitated to that. I think I liked the idea of a book with a word like inimitable in the title, probably quite appealing to a precocious child. And I liked old things. I used to read a lot of the William books and the... Anthony Bookridge, Jennings and Derbyshire books, which are quite heavily indebted to P.G. Woodhouse, I think. Inimitable Jeeves has a story in which um, Bertie Wooster pushes someone into the lake in order to rescue them and get credit for it. Does it really? Yes. Edit, actually, that's not quite what happens. Bertie wants somebody else to jump in and get the credit for it, but the plan goes awry and Bertie has to do it to himself. That sounds very familiar to me, yes. having just read... Love Among the Chickens by P.G. Woodhouse. Which is the book we're discussing today. Can you give us a brief picture of what you tend to like in literature in general, what your other interests are? I suppose I like to engage with the ferment of serious, heady, weighty literary stuff. And so within that, Woodhouse is kind of, you know, a regular respite. From... Slamming it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I dumb down and um, allow myself the indulgence maybe once a year around holiday time. Um, I'll kick back and relax with, uh, with a choice Woodhouse. So I would say that since I was younger, I've probably read Woodhouse books at the rate of roughly one a year, which isn't really that many in the grand scheme of things. 
all adds up and that's uh, imagine more than you would read of a lot of other authors definitely yeah did you know much about him prior to researching for this podcast not really I see you've got a copy of the Robert McCrum biography by your side, which I assume you've read. I I also own a second-hand copy, but I've only opened it in order to uh, look up Love Among the Chickens in the index and check the references there. So in terms of Woodhouse's life and career, I'm pretty ignorant, really. But you said Robert McCrum also wrote the introduction to the edition of Lover Among the Chickens that you've got there, which I have not read. I meant to look into this really because the edition of the book that I read in preparation is a Penguin Modern Classics one that came out in 2002 with an introduction by Robert McCrum. And yeah, I'd never seen Woodhouse as a Penguin Classic before. I'm not sure how many others they published in this series. The first one I noticed was a collection of Blanding's Castle short stories. Mm. So it it does have the imprimatur, never said that word out loud before, it does have the imprimatur of the Penguin classic series on it and it's got this kind of biographical scholarly introduction by Robert McCrum, but the introduction is perhaps a little underwhelming. Love Among the Chickens is by no stretch of the imagination Woodhouse's finest work, but it does show in abundance the promise of great things in store. (laughs) I see what you mean. Would you agree with that assessment? I agree it's not among his finest works, but if I'd read it in 1906 when it came out, I don't think I would have thought, we have a great writer in store here. I think I would (laughs) have just assumed, oh, this is a nice light reading for the holidays. Um, Bit silly in places. I actually prefer his previous books, his school stories. I think that this is a little bit of a step back in some ways, but for understandable reasons, because he was having to start all over again as a writer. When he'd been doing the public school novels, he was writing about what he knew and the whole system of public school with its terms and its sports tournaments gives you a ready-made structure to build a plot on. Mm. And um, without that, framework to fall back on you have to construct a plot from scratch and you have to show some familiarity with adult life which was probably a bit intimidating for a young (laughs) writer with very little life experience yes that's very interesting in terms of the school stories having a ready-made structure because i'd say that reading this book with a a harsh critical eye i felt that it was in issues of structure that it it falls a little flat compared to Woodhouse's later glory. And the structure it has is largely provided with an off-the-shelf story. We'll come on to this later, that the chicken farming part of it is largely true story. Mm. And you have to wonder if maybe he would have attempted an adult novel earlier had he someone given him a plot earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the chicken story, which it, it hangs around... The the titular chickens don't form the, the most crucial part of the overall plot. No, you have to. I, I kind of assume that they didn't actually provide as much hilarious material as he <laughs> anticipated at the beginning, but it's a starting point. Mm. And uh, then he added the love story and love among the chickens introduced the character of Eucridge, one of his major recurring characters the first of his major recurring characters to appear in print. 
That distinction is often assumed to go to Smith, the breakout star of his public school stories, but Love Among the Chickens predates Mike, the book in which Smith makes his debut. It also has a lot of biographical interest, being intimately concerned with his circle of friends, William Townend, Herbert Westbrook, and the Bose Lion Girls, all of whom I've mentioned on the podcast before, all of them previous dedicatees of Woodhouse Books. I'll talk about William Townend first, who gave them the story. My name is William Townend, I sail the ocean blue. William Townend was Woodhouse's greatest friend throughout his life, who he met at school, and Townend brought him the plot, and was rewarded with half of the advance that Woodhouse got for the book. So the story that Townend provided Woodhouse with was sufficient for him to be entitled to half of the advance? Yes. So it seems very generous. Well, well, he was very grateful for him. Like I said, I don't think he knew what to, where to start with a novel. He, throughout his whole life, he was desperate for plots. He, there was almost a mania that he needed plots. I think I mentioned this before in the podcast that we don't think of them as being the most important part of his book. We think of the language, but he definitely considered the plot very important and wouldn't start a book unless he considered he'd got a good one. So he was very grateful, and it's really of a piece with how he's his behaviour with Townend throughout his life. He was always finding excuses to give Townend money. At the time of this book, Townend was working as an illustrator, but later he switched to becoming a writer himself, and it seems Woodhouse felt guilty for encouraging him to be a writer, which was not a very remunerative career for him, so... Without his wife's knowledge, he was always sneaking um, Townend some money on the side. Right, the story. Townend was visiting some other old school friends when he met one Carrington Craxton. Craxton had been working as a teacher in a prep school, but had quit in order to start a chicken farm in Dartmoor. For non-UK listeners, Dartmoor is in roughly the same part of the country as Lyme Regis, where Love Among the Chickens is set. Like Eucridge, he persuaded a friend to come in with him on it. The farm was an ignominious disaster, and he came back to the school with his tail between his legs asking for his old job back. Craxton related many anecdotes of his time chicken farming that uh, Townend found hilarious. Back in London, Townend told these stories to Woodhouse and their friend Herbert Westbrook, about whom much more later. Both Woodhouse and Westbrook wanted to use the material for the basis of a story. When Woodhouse took the initiative and went ahead and wrote it, Westbrook was peeved, but Woodhouse argued Westbrook was too lazy ever to get round to writing it. Here's a letter from Woodhouse to Townend. This is great about our Westie. Damn his eyes. What gory writers he got to the story any more than me. Tell him so with my love. As for me, a regiment of Westbrooks, each slacker than the last, won't stop me. Do send along more Craxton stories, not improper ones. If they're only mildly improper, it's all right. Do come up on 10th. You needn't bring Westy, though. I am very much fed up with him just now, as he has been promising all sorts of things in my name, without my knowledge, to some damned cousins of his, the Goulds, which might have made a lot of worry for me. RSVP. I have locked up your manuscript in case of a raid by Westy. Don't give him all the information you've given me. Not that he would ever get beyond chapter two, though. His intention of rushing through his book doesn't worry me much. Poor Westbrook. 
we can infer from this letter that there were some improper Carrington Craxton stories. So though Woodhouse never met the real-life chicken farmer Carrington Craxton, he is the ostensible model for Eucridge. Like Eucridge, he called people old horse, borrowed things from his friends without asking, wore a yellow Macintosh, wore pants nay held together with ginger beer wire, and presumably did many of the things Eucridge does in this book, given that Woodhouse claims most of the story is true. Though we've no way of knowing how far this goes, whether Craxton, for example, ran the incubators at half temperature for twice as long and expected to achieve the same result. But as Woodhouse explained in a letter to Richard Usborne, But oddly enough, a friend of mine was almost exactly like Eucridge, and I suppose I drew on him for the most part. A man named Westbrook. We used to share digs. They used to share digs, Woodhouse might have added, that he, Woodhouse, always ended up paying for. I'm Herbert Westbrook, the Prince of Slackers. They call me Westy. They call me Brooke. I'm going to be co-author of two of Woodhouse's books. Westbrook dubbed the Prince of Slackers by Woodhouse in the dedication to the gold bat was charming, handsome, witty, amoral, lazy, and a persuasive ladies' man. By coincidence, he was also a former prep school teacher, like Carrington Craxton. I spoke about him a little with Alex Rennie in the Gold Bat episode, uh, but they were very close for a while, but Woodhouse soon tired of Westbrook's unreliable sponging ways. Westbrook liked to borrow Woodhouse's clothes, on one occasion leading him to attend a party in a suit much too big for him, causing the butler to laugh at him. The later Eucridge of the short stories is definitely Westbrook, and he is much more unscrupulous and ruthless in these stories than he is in Love Among the Chickens. Introduction to the original book version. Dear Bill, in the case of a book of this kind, it is only right that the responsibility should be fixed. I take this opportunity of exposing you, but for the help I derived from your almost insolent familiarity with the habits of chickens, I should probably have been compelled to give up writing this book and go back to work again. The dedication of the first edition was to Sir Bargrave and Lady Dean. The Right Honourable Sir Henry Bargrave Dean, QC, was a High Court judge and cousin to Woodhouse's mother. The later version is dedicated to Townend, along with a second introduction addressed to him. Dear Bill, I've never been much of a lad for the... To... Blank. But for whose sympathy and encouragement this book would never have been written. Type of dedication. It sounds so weak-minded, but in the case of love among the chickens it is unavoidable... It was not so much that you sympathised and encouraged. Where you really came out strong was that you gave me the stuff. I like people who sympathise with me. I am grateful to those who encourage me. But the man to whom I raised the Woodhouse hat, owing to the increased cost of living, the same brown one I had last year, it is being complained of on all sides, but the public must bear it, like men, till the straw hat season comes round. I say, the man to whom I raise this venerable relic is the man who gives me the material. Sixteen years ago, my William, when we were young and sprightly lads, when you were a tricky centre-forward and I a fast bowler, when your head was covered with hair and my list of hobbies in who's who included boxing, I received from you one morning about thirty closely written fool's cap pages, giving me the details of your friend Blank's adventures on his Devonshire chicken farm. Round these I wove as funny a plot as I could, but the book stands or falls by the stuff you gave me about, quote, Eucridge, the things that actually happened. You will notice that I have practically rewritten the book, 
there was some pretty bad work in it and it had dated as an instance of the way in which the march of modern civilization has left the 1906 edition behind i may mention that on page 21 i was able to make euchridge speak of selling eggs at six for five pence yours ever pg woodhouse london 1920 before i'd read the earlier version this introduction made me fear the worst particularly the detail about the price of eggs what's the point of updating a book if all you're going to do is adjust for inflation as to me one of the pleasures of reading old books good or bad is getting flavor of how things were in the past so the idea of woodhouse contaminating with the authentic 1905 feeling with some 1920 matter is irritating to me but thankfully there were other changes he made that i do approve of in the original euclid was selling eggs at six for five pence and uh, in the revised edition that i've read i noted that the eggs are uh, six for half a crown I did have an experiment with an online currency converter of seeing what those eggs would cost now and I decided that it would mean six eggs were equivalent to £12.70. I don't think that can be right unless eggs... Have... <laughs> were eggs more of a luxury 120 years I ago? I don't think so. I think it's more that things do not rise in price at the same rate, so all of these approximate values that you come up they're always slightly flawed because things change with supply and demand, don't mm. they? I wonder if the First World War affected the price of eggs. Well, that that was my original research that I undertook for the purposes of this podcast. Well, thank you for going I, to... I, I fear it may be flawed. Mm, but that kind of just emphasises why I think Woodhouse was misguided to worry about how his readers might react to the price of eggs in his book. I think that's the least of his worries. Yes, it's interesting that he uses that as the excuse for the revision when presumably there were a number of other more pressing reasons why he wanted to revise it, but which he's not announcing to the reader in the introduction. Mm. It was published in June 1906 by George Newnes rather than by A.N.C. Black, who had previously published his boys' books and who would continue to publish his boys' books. It was not serialised in a magazine beforehand, Woodhouse had particularly wanted it to be serialised because then he thought he could get town in to do the illustrations but it was not to be. It must have been something of a success because it was soon reprinted. In 1908 the novel would be serialised in the American magazine The Circle then Circle Publishing published the American book version in 1909. Then in 1921 as we've been discussing P.G. Woodhouse substantially rewrote and republished the book. The book was ultimately such a success that Woodhouse acquired the nickname Chickens. If the skeleton of the plot was provided by Carrington Craxton's doings, the setting was provided by a holiday Woodhouse took in Lyme Regis with the Bowes Lion family. In the later version it was renamed Coombe Regis, in line with Woodhouse's later custom of disguising his place names, but in the original it's Lyme Regis. Have you ever been to Lyme Regis? No. But it was painted vividly enough for me to get the gist. Have you ever been to Lyme Regis? No. Well, there's room for a Woodhouse field trip. So. so he took a holiday there with the Bowes Lion family, which was a widow and her three daughters. The three Bowes Lion girls, who we have affectionately called the Lion Cubs, were the dedicatees of Woodhouse's first book. They were the cousins of Elizabeth Bowes Lyon, who married George the Sixth, and was better known to you and me as the Queen Mother. 
although maybe we should call her the king's grandmother now. It shows how Woodhouse, though a poor relation of the Earl of Kimberley, who had to work for his keep, was still adjacent to the nobility and knew whereof he spoke when he wrote about earls and countesses. So Woodhouse was a friend of the family, and the Bowes Lions girl's mother liked to have Woodhouse round to make up the numbers at social gatherings, and he was a sort of elder brother figure to the girls. A lot of his early short stories feature young girls as characters or even narrators, and no doubt the lion cubs used to tell him when he got things wrong, like Phyllis Derrick tells Jeremy Garnett in Love Among the Chickens that he can't write female characters. Anyway, he was close enough to the family that he came along with them on a holiday to Lyme Regis, which provides the setting for the book. Westbrook and Townend also came along to Lyme Regis at the same time and stayed somewhere else. So presumably, while he was there, Woodhouse divided his time between the lion cubs and his writer friends. The Woodhouse expert, Richard Usborne, thought Eucridge was partly modelled on Cullingworth, a character in Arthur Conan Doyle's 1895 novel, The Stark Munro Letters. So I read that novel, and I have to agree with Usborne. The similarity of the, between the characters is remarkable, and also the similarity between the plots of the two novels. And we know Woodhouse was a devotee of Doyle's, quoting him and referencing his books constantly in his early school stories. And by this point he was also a friend and cricketing buddy of Doyle's. I was reading Love Among the Chickens and the Stark Munro Letters almost simultaneously, and I genuinely struggled to remember which of the two books I was reading in one of the early chapters of the Stark Munro Letters. The Stark Munro Letters is an autobiographical novel that Doyle admitted was nearly all closely based on his own life, with the narrator J. Stark Munro being Doyle himself. It details Doyle's difficult early professional life trying to establish himself as a doctor. Cullingworth was his eccentric fellow medical student, who invites Munro to join him as a partner in his medical practice, where Munro is horrified at Cullingworth's unconventional and unscrupulous practices. But the part that really reminds me of Love Among the Chickens is an earlier chapter when Munro visits Cullingworth in response to an urgent telegram at a previous attempt at a medical practice, and is surprised to find that he has a wife whose major characteristics are her extreme blind loyalty and devotion to her husband. Cullingworth immediately bombards Monroe with various money-making schemes and inventions he has dreamed up, and only wants a little capital in order to start raking in his fortune. He calls Monroe Laddie, a name Eucridge also uses for his friends. My dear Monroe, this was the start of the thing, why was armour abandoned, eh? What? I'll tell you why. It was because the weight of metal that would protect a man who was standing up was more than he could carry. But battles are not fought nowadays by men who are standing up. Your infantry are all lying on their stomachs, and it would take very little to protect them. And steel has improved, Munro. Chilled steel! Bessemer! Bessemer! Very good. How much to cover a man? Fourteen inches by twelve, meeting at an angle so that the bullet will glance, and notch at one side for the rifle. There you have it, laddie. The Cullingworth Patent Portable Bulletproof Shield. Weight? Oh, the weight would be sixteen pounds. I worked it out. Each company carries its shields in go-carts, and they are served out on going into action. Let's reckon it out. There's about eight million of them on a war footing. Let us suppose that only half of them have it. I say only half, because I don't want to be too sanguine. That's four million, and I should take a royalty of four shillings on wholesale orders. What's that, Munro? About three quarters of a million sterling, eh? How's that, laddie, eh? 
The initial medical practice faces financial collapse almost as soon as it begins, and Cullingworth is forced to summon all his creditors to a meeting together and plead bankruptcy. Cullingworth also has a medal for saving a life. He reveals to Munro that he pushed a child in the water in order to rescue him, and also had to bribe some witnesses in order to gain the medal. So the pushing somebody into the water in order to get them out again motif is in both novels. Also unrelated to the Eucharist stroke Cullingworth character, the plot of the Stark Munro letters has another striking similarity to the plot of Love Among the Chickens. I have given a spoiler warning for Love Among the Chickens, but not for the Stark Munro letters, so I will refrain from revealing that plot similarity on air. Cullingworth has a genuinely sinister and menacing side that Eucharist lacks, even in the later Eucharist stories, which is fitting for a heavier and more serious novel. Cullingworth was apparently based on one George Turnovin Budd, so we can add Budd to Carrington Craxton and Herbert Westbrook as candidates for real-life Eucridges. Maybe the personality of Eucridge is not so unusual out there in the wild. Note, I failed to press record when I was talking to Tom about the Stark Munro letters, so I've had to record this section separately on my own, which is why you can't hear Tom agreeing with me heartily. Back to the conversation with Tom. But in any case, Eucridge isn't even the main character. The main character is Jeremy Garnett, an author who is clearly based on Woodhouse himself, especially insofar as his professional life as an author is concerned. Garnett had previously made a cameo in a short story called The Wire Pullers, which was the first story Woodhouse ever managed to place in the Strand magazine in July 1905. In Love Among the Chickens, Garnett's role as an author stand-in is even commented upon in the text, sort of. When it says of a previous book Garnet had written, Arthur was the hero. He was a young writer. Ergo, Arthur was himself. Jeremy Garnet is usually described as being the author of The Maneuvers of Arthur, etc. Woodhouse was usually billed in the Captain magazine as author of The Maneuvers of Charteris, after a particularly popular long short story of his. The many passages about Garnet at work provide telling insight into Woodhouse's own working life. He could not think what to write about. He felt particularly unfitted for writing at that moment. The morning is not the time for inventive work. An article may be polished then, or a half-finished story completed, but 11am is not the hour at which to invent. A search through his commonplace book brought no balm. A commonplace book is the author's ragbag. In it he places all the insane ideas that come to him, and the groundless hope that someday he will be able to convert them with magic touch into marketable plots. This was the luminous item which first met Mr. Garnet's eye. Mem. Dead body found in railway carriage under seat. Only one living occupant of carriage. He is suspected of being murderer, but proves that he only entered carriage at twelve o'clock in the morning, while the body has been dead since the previous night. To this bright scheme were appended the words, This will want some working up, J.G. It will, thought Jerry Garnet grimly, but it will go on wanting as far as I'm concerned. He took from the pocket of his blazer a letter which had arrived some days before from an artist friend who was on a sketching tour in Devonshire and Somerset. There was a pencilled memorandum on the envelope in his own handwriting. Men might work KL's story about M and the WS's into comic yarn for one of the weeklies. He gazed at this for a while with a last hope that in it might be contained the germ of something which would enable him to turn out a morning's work. 
but having completely forgotten who K.L. was and especially what was his or her story about M, whoever he or she might be, he abandoned this hope and turned to the letter in the envelope. Yeah, I thought having Garner as the central character and as an author standing figure was an interesting device and I liked the idea of his published works like Garnet having written the book The Maneuvers of Arthur and whether there's scope for a Woodhouse fan fiction attempt to uh, imagine what a book called The Maneuvers of Arthur might look like I thought it was interesting that he mentions that he's in Who's Who that was a sort of device to a say who he is but also point out that he's posh enough to be in who's who it's sort of relevant to the plot that he's in line to inherit a lot of money when he marries although he doesn't have any money at the present yes but then his status as a published author is undermined when he's um referring to things like uh Jay Garnett being a man of whose work so capable of judges the people's advertiser had said shows promise. Yes, I think we can assume that he has not really set the literary world alight yet, as of course Woodhouse hadn't either. So we open in the original version, the first few chapters are told in the third person, by the way, but they're substantially similar, and Garnet is in his lodgings and he's struggling to write. He can't get any ideas for a story, and he's extremely annoyed by his fellow lodger upstairs. This is getting perfectly impossible, he said to himself. I must get out of this. A fellow can't work in town. I'll go down to some farmhouse in the country. I can't think here. Those who listened to the podcast episode about the gold bat might remember our discussion about how Woodhouse and Westbrook used to spend their time at Emsworth House in Hampshire, and how Woodhouse found it an excellent place to escape the noise of London and do some writing. Then Garnet receives a letter from a friend warning him that he may soon be visited by another old friend, Stanley Fanshawe Eukridge, who is a notorious sponger and pest. He tells his landlady he is leaving immediately, but it's too late. Eukridge is already at the door with his wife, Millie, of whom Garnet has never heard before. Millie plays very little role in the story beyond a sort of calming influence. And I wonder if she's just there because Cullingworth has a similar wife in the Stark Munro letters. It does seem unusual to me that she features at all because she's barely a presence. And reading the book, I was amused by the devices that are used to um, remove her from the scene at any given moment. Yeah, I don't think he really knows what to do with female characters at this point. But he can always put them in a different train carriage because for instance they may not like the smell of smoke when travelling. <laughs> yes that's right Eucridge and his wife travel in separate compartments because Eucridge wants to chat to Garnet and uh, in the smoking carriage and Millie doesn't want to be in the smoking carriage uh, shades of a world where men and women were kept more separate. Okay the Eucridges tell Garnet that they're starting a chicken farm on a borrowed property in Lyme Regis, Dorset Coon Regis in the rewrite, and they insist Garnet joins them. They win him over by mentioning there are excellent golf links, and also it's already been established that he wants to get away from London. So the next chapter they're on the train, and for this description of the train journey, Woodhouse draws on an account that Teeny Bowes Lyon wrote to him, which also included the detail of someone sitting on a bag of food. 
In the train carriage, Garnet notices an Irish father and daughter, and he falls in love at first sight with the latter. By a great coincidence, she is reading one of his own books. In the 1921 version, she mentions it was given to her by her friend Molly McEachern. Molly McEachern is a character in a subsequent Woodhouse novel, A Gentleman of Leisure. Woodhouse liked to have all his characters exist in the same world. I wonder who Jeremy Garnet is, said Phyllis. I've never heard of him before. I imagine him rather an old young man, probably with an eyeglass, and conceited. He must be conceited. I can tell that from the style, and I should think he didn't know many girls. At least, if he thinks Pamela Grant an ordinary sort of girl. Basically, he sees somebody on the train, he falls in love with them, but uh, he may never see them again. However... Uh, they arrive at the house and where they're going to have the chicken farm, and Beale, the man of all work, and his wife are out. This couple are to keep the house for them, for there was no question in those days of middle or upper class people being able to do their own cooking and housework. The Beale's fierce dog is present, however, and much space is devoted to their efforts to escape the fury of this animal, till Beale finally arrives, threatening them with a gun till he realises who they are. He says he had no idea the Eucridges were to arrive that day. Eucridge browbeats him until he realises that the letter he wrote to Beale informing him of their arrival is still unsent in his pocket. When the chickens arrive, they have failed to get coops for them, so they have to spend the day making them out of boxes but unfortunately a third of the chickens escape in the confusion. Because Eucridge had not been very specific with his order, the chicken supplier has given them far too many cocks and not enough hens, though this detail is exclusive to the 1906 version. Chapter 6 is where the first-person narration starts in the original book, without explanation. Halfway through chapter 5, Woodhouse starts quoting a letter Garnet wrote to his friend at the time. My contention is that as he was writing this section, Woodhouse realised that Garnet would make an excellent narrator for the rest of the book and simply decided at that point to switch over without bothering to go back and rewrite the previous chapters. So that would be a, a more plausible reason why he revised the book later to make it all in first person rather than his concern about uh, yes. the inflated prices of eggs. Now can I just see your copy of the book there? If you notice, chapter 6 is... The chapter title is Mr. Garnet's Narrative. Has Which to no do with a reunion. Yeah. yeah, so that's Woodhouse has changed it so it's all in first person, but he's forgotten to change the title of the chapter where it switches to Mr. Garnet's Narrative and, and so like, have his proofreaders. I feel like this book could have gone through another reunion. <laughs> yeah, um, you have to draw the line somewhere. <laughs> it, it seems a very odd device to suddenly switch from third person to first person. I was quite excited when I found out that the the earlier version was started in third person because I assumed it meant that the plot was different, that there was some reason behind it, that there was some information that, that Garnet didn't know about. Because Woodhouse rarely wrote in first person when he wasn't writing the P.G. Woodhouse, <laughs> writing the Bertie Wister stories, Freudian slip there, when he wasn't writing the Bertie Wister stories or some of the short stories because it was hard writing from one person's perspective because the reader can only know what they know. So mm. that's what made me think maybe. But no, it's everything in those first five chapters is, is the same. From, it's from his viewpoint, but it's told in the third person. Yeah. Yeah, so you just put it down to the learning curve, I suppose. But it's strange his publisher didn't, or his editor didn't suggest it. But to be honest, sometimes I think people make too big a deal about this kind of thing nowadays. Well, there are some other 
shifts that I thought were interesting. In the original edition, there's the epilogue, which I'm sure we'll come on to, which yeah. is actually written in play form. Yeah. There was also the section, this is jumping forward slightly in the plot, but <laughs> where Garnet comes up with his plan that involves the figure of the professor uh, yeah. being pushed out of the boat and Garnet rescuing him and earning his respect as a result. When Garnet's wrestling with his conscience, there's this curious little scene where that internal battle with his conscience is depicted as a, as a, as a sports report yes. of a boxing match. Boxing. In the introduction, Woodhouse noted that at the time his who entry included an interest in boxing. <laughs> well, he was very into his boxing. Yes, I mean, he was writing a lot of boxing stories at the time. As it, well. But boxing isn't the only sport that features in in this book, unfortunately. <laughs> it's not exactly Tristram Shandy, but it is mm. quite creative. And yeah, so things that when I was reading it would make me think, oh, formal experimentation here. Obviously, at the time, this wouldn't have seemed like something deserving of comment. Mm. The dog Bob chases a hen called Aunt Elizabeth in the 1921 version, who was described as a Bolshevik. It might have been too early to describe a hen as a Bolshevik in 1906. Garnet tries to catch the hen before she is lost. He chases her a long way and goes through a hedge, finding himself in the garden, which turns out to belong to the Irish family he saw on the train. The hen, Aunt Elizabeth, is obviously amusingly described, like you say, as a, a Bolshevist hen. And I suppose there's elements here of descriptions that Woodhouse will later use with formidable female characters, possibly ants. Yes, the Aunt Elizabeth is named after Millie's aunt, mm. who doesn't like Eucridge and calls him a Gabby and a Guffin. <laughs> Maybe Aunt Elizabeth is the first in a very long series of formidable aunts. Later on it refers to the sound of her faint spinster-like snigger, <laughs> which I found funny, but also slightly jarring. I think maybe the distinction between aunt and spinster. Spinster felt slightly cruel to me, but it amused me nonetheless. The scene that follows then, where Garnet finds himself chancing upon the same Irishman and daughter who he became besotted with on the train, I thought in terms of those slight issues I had with the structure of the book, that seemed to come very soon, very quickly after seeing the girl on the train and thinking, oh, I'll never meet this woman again. And then I think, what is it, maybe two whole chapters later, he bumps into them. Yeah, it doesn't leave you uh, waiting very long. And similarly, because of course he's seen uh, the girl Phyllis on the train reading one of his own books, I was imagining maybe it's clouded through having read other Woodhouse books, but I thought there could be some kind of complex mistaken identity element introduced here as he keeps the fact that he is the author whose name she would recognise 
I was expecting that he might have to keep that from her for some reason, but in fact it comes up quite quickly in the conversation between the two of them. Yes. He is the author of the book. That's a very good observation, yeah. I think I didn't go so far as to make a note of it, but I think somewhere in the back of my head the same thought occurred to me. We just like to see a pattern of, of how things start, these misunderstandings which uh, Woodhouse's bread and butter yeah the way they start with harmless things like someone being shy or embarrassed about exactly. someone reading their book on a train yeah but actually this meeting it quickly comes to light that uh, Garnet is the Garnet who wrote the book she's reading and then she's a little embarrassed because she realises that he must have heard her criticising the book on the train in his earshot mm. where she was criticising the author's inability to write female characters which then comes up again when uh, they speak for the first time and she explains yes I, I didn't like your heroine who she described in the train as a creature and Garnet says to her no what what is a creature Miss Derek Pamela in your book is a creature she replied unsatisfactorily um, and I was very intrigued and by she's relieved to find that Pamela isn't based on a real person yes <laughs> Because, um, because Pam, yeah, later on she's reading uh, one of Garnet's other books and finds the the female character in that book to be much the same as as Pamela in this one. So I wondered what the implications were of that phrase "creature" when Phyllis is dismissively describing this female character in Garnet's book as a creature. Yeah, I've seen it in other old books, but it probably depended on the person using it as to what it actually meant. Mm. I would have thought a lot of people used it to mean someone of rather loose morals. Right, okay. okay. I don't think that can be the case in Jeremy Garnett's novels, <laughs> which I'm sure are very clean and wholesome. Yes. It, as you mentioned, it is a nice touch. It, it seems like a, a modern-day concern launching criticisms of male writers for not being able to convincingly portray women. So it's interesting that there's a running joke of that within within the mm. novel. Within a novel which may not pay much attention to its female characters, it must be said. Yeah. Jeremy does find some consolation in that she likes his hero, which he considers to be based on himself, <laughs> so his inference is that, oh, she must like me as well then. <laughs> Um, sorry, just the page that I'm looking at here That exchange between uh, Garner and Phyllis The chapter then ends with the uh, the ominous sound of Aunt Elizabeth chuckling from her basket In that beastly, cynical, satirical way Which has made her so disliked by all right-thinking people mm. You see, all of this stuff is added for the revision So I think it was worthwhile adding all of these little touches Yes, the idea of a satirical hen. Yeah. I'll just, well, I'll find what it says specifically just for the record, but the hen is not called Aunt Elizabeth in the original. Cherog said the hen satirically from her basket, is what it says for that. Ah. Uh, so, yeah, the, the description's padded out with the beastly cynical. This is what Woodhouse did throughout his career, by the way, is he would write a simple version of the story and then he would go back and 
add in all the funny bits later. So. That's really interesting. So as you were saying earlier then about him being concerned with having a story first and foremost to hang everything on. Mm. And the scaffolding. The scaffolding. And then of course when you're reading the books that's the stuff that's all burnt invisible at times because what's providing the entertainment mm. is the the descriptions that would have been added later. But I do notice it when it's not there. When a Woodhouse book has a particularly inferior plot it does mm. affect my enjoyment I've noticed okay the household consists of Professor Derek of Trinity College Dublin Phyllis Derek and Tom Chase a military man who Garnet fears is Phyllis's intended it turns out Eucridge is a local celebrity and his farm has been the talk of the neighborhood and these people are fascinated to hear all about it and they invite him in for dinner and a return date is arranged the next chapter, we're back Shay Eucridge the day the Derricks are due to visit when they are also expecting the delivery of their cat, Edwin. Unfortunately, when the cat arrives, he sees the dog and runs up the chimney and won't come down again. And since it's the chimney beneath the kitchen stove, Mrs. Beale can't cook a meal, so they have to serve their visitors a cold buffet. This part was particularly pleasing to me because there's a story in my family of uh, how my parents uh, got their first cat. They just moved to the country and their city friends sent them a spare kitten and when this city bred kitten arrived in the countryside it was terrified and it ran up the chimney and they couldn't get it down again. I can't remember how they eventually got but it down. Presumably ultimately they did get there. The yes. So the cold meal doesn't go down very well, especially since Eucridge calls the professor a fat old buffer upon meeting him. So in this scene, Garnet's keen Nobody to says. keep things congenial and friendly, whereas mm. Eucridge seems to have no... Eucridge is so far unaware that Garnet is carrying the torch for Phyllis. Eucridge is also unaware that the professor is um, touchy about Ireland and the question of home rule yes the professor's berserk button is anyone who doesn't know what they're talking about talking about Ireland and I think Eucridge certainly fits that bill <laughs> um, but it isn't explained exactly what he said but whatever it was the professor is furious yes. A at what Eucridge says and B at Garnet's implication that, that he the professor is incapable of talking calmly and coolly on the subject so he storms out of the house and uh, vows never to speak to either of them again or with that effect. This is unfortunate. obviously bad news for yeah, Garnet. Yes, because Garnet is very keen on the professor's daughter. So if only Garnet was able to come up with some kind of scheme by which he could ingratiate himself with the professor. <laughs> Meanwhile, with the chickens, they have got the roop and die off at an alarming rate. I'm not so sure what about this Woodhouse and Townend and Westbrook thought was so hilarious, but then we get... Uh, yeah, I was curious about that as well, actually. It didn't... It seemed to uh, darken the, the lightness of the tone of it. The idea of a, an outbreak of disease and these chickens. Um, yes, he's trying to figure out how he can ingratiate himself with the professor. And he thinks about the old trope of saving someone from peril, saving someone from drowning, and he draws attention to the fact that it is already a cliché. 
Yes, that sort of thing happened in fiction, he says. It is a shame that it should not happen in real life. In my hot youth, I once had seven stories in seven weekly penny papers in the same month, all dealing with a situation of the kind. And then he lists uh, some of these plots. In other words, I, a very mediocre scribbler, had affected seven times in a single month what the powers of the universe could not manage once, even on the smallest scale. I had determined upon a manly and independent course of action. Briefly it was this, providence had failed to give satisfaction. I would therefore cease any connection with it and start a rival business on my own account. After all, if you want a thing done well, you must do it yourself. So he's going to create the accident that causes the professor to be in peril and, and save him from it. And this itself, in itself, is a cliché, the whole twist on the saving someone from drowning where the person caused it themselves. Recurring motifs, recurring motifs, we can't get away from those recurring motifs. I've already mentioned that that was in the Stark Munro letters by Arthur Conan Doyle, and Woodhouse absolutely depended on this plotline. He returned to it again and again, and it's amazing that it starts here in his first major book. Garnet pays one Harry Hawk a sovereign, aka a pound, to upset the boat when he's rowing the professor about. It all goes off as planned, amazingly, and Professor Derrick is effusive with thanks at Garnet saving his life and full of fury at Harry Hawk. And he remarks, My scheme had been so successful that its iniquity did not worry me. I have noticed that this is usually the case in matters of this kind. It is the bungled crime that brings remorse. Meanwhile, times are hard at the chicken farm. The local tradesmen will no longer extend them credit, so Mrs. Beale is forced to feed them with what she can, viz. chicken and eggs, which further runs down their stocks, and they are all heartily sick of eggs. Garnet visits Phyllis, and everything is getting cosy when Tom Chase walks in and tells them of his suspicion that Hawk was paid to put the professor in the water, and did so deliberately. He says he has seen the technique before and gives a plausible account of navy life in Malta. If he suspects Garnet, however, he does not reveal it. Then they play tennis and Garnet performs poorly and is excessively embarrassed about it. Yeah, to be fair, this tennis scene only seems to occupy three pages, but I did wonder why it had to be that <laughs> I was reading the book. Yeah, I think it's hard to say whether it reflects Garnet's, uh, how much importance he places on sport or it actually reflects Woodhouse's own priorities. Mm. So he was extremely sporty, as we've mentioned. But I think we are supposed to laugh at Garnet quite mm. a bit for thinking it's so important that he performs tennis so badly in front of his, uh, yes. his uh, beloved. And presumably at the time, tennis and golf would have had a fashionability or a, a social cachet that so a lot of the time um, men and women were separated but uh, one place they could freely uh, interact was on the tennis court yeah. later on when they're uh, they're reconciled Garnet says frankly I didn't see how a girl could ever care for a man who was so bad at tennis <laughs> to which Phyllis replies one doesn't love a man because he's good at tennis what does a girl see to love in a man I inquired abruptly and paused on the verge of a great discovery <laughs> oh I don't know she replied most unsatisfactorily, and I can draw no views from her. I take this as further comment on Garnet Stroke Woodhouse's failure to understand the female psyche. 
Yes. Here's a quote from Euclid. The chicken men, the dealer people you know, want me to pay up for the first lot of hens. Considering that they all died of roop and that I was going to send them back anyhow after I'd got them to hatch out a few chickens, I call that cool. I was just beginning to forget all about you, Critch. Yes. <laughs> What's he been up to while all this plot's been developing? Garnet receives a letter from the Professor saying that the Professor has discovered that Garnet put Hawk up to upsetting the boat and encloses a letter from Hawk's girlfriend explaining this. He informs Garnet that their acquaintanceship is at an end. He believes this to have been a practical joke and he is absolutely livid. Also, by this point in the novel, it's been established that Garnet stands to receive his inheritance if he marries, but that only comes in quite far on in the story. Um, Yes, Garnet's explaining to the reader why he hasn't been able to use his own money to bail out the chicken farm. It may be wondered why, before things came to such crisis, I had not placed my balance at the bank at the disposal of the senior partner for use on behalf of the farm. And then he explains that his parents were poor, but he had a wealthy uncle, and the wealthy uncle didn't believe in bachelors having lots of money, therefore he's allowed an allowance um, but only once he's married again that's the kind of detail that I was surprised hadn't been announced earlier on in the book particularly mm. with regards to Garnet's interest in, in Phyllis I'm putting that down to structural weakness maybe although he would want to make it clear that his interest in Phyllis was not a mercenary one <laughs> he wasn't just out to grab the first possible female in order to uh, get his hands on his uncle's money. It's not a plot line like the Buster Keaton film Seven Chances, for example. No, you make quite a compelling case there, actually. I would question whether it's necessary for the plot for Garnet to come from a rich family at all. It seems just in a way to ensure that the happy ending is happy enough, really, that Woodhouse doesn't want us to be worried that they won't have enough money to live on. <laughs> yeah. So, and maybe he wants to re remove any objection the professor might have to Garnet as a suitor other than the fact that he personally is infuriated with him. <laughs> yeah, other than the fact that Garnet arranged yeah. to have him drowned. <laughs> yes, he really could do without having any more objections. Garnet's reaction to being found out is not to say it's a fair cop. I guess I could have seen that coming, but to rage against... Uh, Hawk's girlfriend for spilling the beans. This prompts a misogynistic tirade from Garnet that is very familiar to seasoned Woodhouse readers. It's the same one Woodhouse seems to cut and paste and stick in every time a male character is thwarted or snooted, as he would say, by a female character. Garnet goes out to confront Hawk and finds him in a drunken stupor. It seems his life has been ruined by the upsetting of the boat as he is a figure of ridicule and no one will trust him with any work anymore. Garnet doesn't seem to feel very responsible for this, but he does feel sympathetic. At this low point in the story, there is a slight ray of sunshine in that Garnet gets paid for a short story and they're able to have a slap-up feast with no chicken or egg ingredients. Thank God, said Eucridge as he began to carve. It was the first time I'd ever heard him say a grace. Garnet decides to have it out with Phyllis and forces her to listen to him as she paints and he explains why he committed his evil crimes out of love for her. 
And there's an interesting paragraph here in the 1906 version that isn't in the 1921 version that I think is Woodhouse showing off his new knowledge of American slang, having just been on his first trip to America. When a girl shows a man that his presence is unwelcome, it's up to him, as an American friend of mine pithily observed to me on one occasion, to get busy and chase himself and see if he can make the tall timber in two jumps. In terms of contemporary expressions, I was interested by reference to, I think, a fit of the blues at one point. I wasn't mm. aware that that phrase had been being used in the, the 1900s. In the 19th century, the English phrase blue devils referred to the upsetting hallucinations brought on by severe alcohol withdrawal. This was later shortened to the blues, which described states of depression and upset, and it was later adopted as the name for the melancholic songs that the musical genre encapsulates. Britannica.com. Somehow Garnet manages to persuade Phyllis that he is fit to be forgiven and he tells her of his love and she reciprocates and Woodhouse sort of draws a curtain over this situation so it doesn't get too slushy for us the reader for which I am grateful. It is revealed that uh, Chase is not a suitor but her cousin though in the mores of the time that would not preclude him from also being a suitor, but he isn't a suitor, so Garnet is very relieved. In terms of the structure of the novel and things that I saw as opportunities for conflict or the peril, the presence of Tom Chase didn't really go anywhere. Obvious red herring, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> they are faced with the problem of how to win over Phyllis's father, so Garnet asks Eucridge for advice. The idea they cook up between them is that Garnet is to accost the professor while he's bathing in the sea, uh, so he can't escape. He has to hear Garnet out, and Eucridge insists on accompanying him in the 1921 version. This is not the case in the 1906 version, where Garnet goes alone and I think this is a sign that Woodhouse, on revising the novel, thought that he hadn't done enough with Eucridge, that he hadn't really got the most out of the character and needed to That's ins insert him in a, another because scene or two. When I was reading it, I was wondering whether Eucridge really needed to be in this scene. Yeah, he is. The, the, the reads doesn't read that differently. It's just because delete Eucridge's interjections and then you have it really. My expectation was that Garnet would be being more reasonable in trying to make amends with the professor, and then Eucridge might be putting his phone in a bit more. But in They're fact, both yeah, Garnet uh, <laughs> enthusiastically puts his feet in it. Yeah, the humour in this book, both with Eucridge and with Garnet, is their consistent protestation that they are in the right when they are patently in the wrong. And Eucridge with his creditors, and Garnet with this ridiculous situation he's got himself in with yes. the professor. This goes to extremes here as he tries to convince the professor, as he seems to have convinced himself, that as he saved the professor from drowning, the professor should be grateful to him, irrespective of the fact that it was Garnet who was responsible for him falling in the water in the first place. Mm -hmm. He does admit, does Garnet, I am the hero of this story, but I have my off moments. <laughs> But as for putting more Eucridge in the book, I could do with a bit less of him, to be honest. I do like the later Eucridge stories, but in this book he's just a bit annoying and one note for me. Yeah. The professor is furious about being ambushed in the sea. 
You detain me in the water till I am blue, sir, blue with cold, in order to listen to the most preposterous and impudent nonsense I ever heard. This was unjust. If he had heard me attentively from the first and avoided interruptions and not behaved like a submarine, we should have got through our business in half the time. Uh, this is because the professor kept diving underwater to avoid hearing um, Garnet's nonsense. But the professor cannot avoid Garnet when they face each other in the final of the local golf tournament. How does this come about? So, hang on. Garnet and Eucridge interrupt the professor's morning swim to so Garnet can try and apologise and explain and ask for the professor's daughter's hand in marriage. And then the professor is furious. And then Garnet comes home and receives a letter <laughs> from the professor inviting him to play against him in the final of the golf tournament. It's a, it's a formality he has to do. He doesn't mm. want to send this letter, but this has been set up already, the situation with yeah. the golf tournament. The professor and Garnet, they're both wild about golf. Four. And there's been this tournament, this annual tournament, and the professor comes to Lyme Regis every year and he's made it to the final every year but he's always been beaten by someone and that someone who's beaten him in the past isn't there this year so he thinks this is his year to finally win the golf tournament but unfortunately Jeremy Garnett is an ace at golf and he has also made it to the final and his handicap is much not handicap what do I mean he's better at golf than and he's also feeling very vindictive now after yeah. Mr. Garnet, I came here for golf, not conversation, he said. We made it so. I think that line should please any Star Trek The Next Generation fans. It could be an entry point in good terms. The golf section is very similar to later golf stories. You may be aware that Woodhouse wrote a whole two books full of short stories about golf. And I like, am aware of this, but I haven't, I haven't read them. How much golf is in them? A lot of golf. Okay. <laughs> and they kind of go a little bit like this. This is a typical situation that would occur in his golf stories. The um, Garnet is starts the match determined to thrash the professor out of peak, but gradually it occurs to him that he should at least let the professor win a few holes to solve his pride, and then eventually he lets the professor almost catch up, and it's the last hole and Garnet is about to putt the ball that will win him the tournament when he says to the professor that he might just miss it if he were to be distracted with say some very good news such as the shock uh, announcement that he is allowed to marry the professor's daughter and it's a, a pleasing conclusion. The professor fortunately and improbably takes this in good part and gives a hearty laugh and consents to the marriage. I suppose Woodhouse's message is that golf is a force for good in the world, that it brings warring parties together somehow. I wonder how the farm is getting on. Yeah. Garnet rushes home jubilantly to tell Eucridge of his good fortune, only to find the Eucridges are not there. And he immediately concludes they have fled. They're fled away from their creditors. The next day all the creditors are on the lawn, with only Garnet to remonstrate with them, and Beale to try and fight them. Garnet thinks it's a good idea to give them all whiskey, 
and then he washes his hands of the whole affair, telling them that he doesn't expect Eucridge back and that he doesn't think they'll get their money. The creditors, lubricated with whiskey, decide to smash the place up in retaliation. Only then does Eucridge show up. He has been with Millie to visit Aunt Elizabeth to try and borrow more money off her. The person, that is, not the hen. He protested that he left Garnet a note explaining where they were going, but sure enough, as before, it turns out the note is still in his pocket. Anyway, they have the money from the aunt, but this doesn't allow for the wreck of the house that has just been created. In the end, Millie got the money and I got the home truths. Did she call you a gabby? Twice, and a guffin three times. Your Aunt Elizabeth is beginning to fascinate me. She seems just the sort of woman I would like. And there is a, another appearance from Millie back at the farm here after Euclid returns, and uh, Euclid and Garner are having it out. At this point, Mrs Euclid joined us. She'd been exploring the house and noting the damage done. Always a reason for her to be off stage. Don't quite make as much of a feature of it as... Uh the wives of Captain Mannering in Dad's Army or <laughs> indoors in um... <laughs> it, Yeah, it, maybe it would have been better if uh, she, Minder. Yeah, she could have been part of the rich list of off-screen wives <laughs> The money they bring back with them from Aunt Elizabeth is enough to pay off the back wages of Mr and Mrs Beale, so it's a happy ending for them at least uh, The two versions end differently here the 1906 version has the chapter ending somberly with Euclid and Garnet and the dog standing silently on the beach. But then the happy ending is restored with the epilogue, which is about Garnet and Phyllis's wedding, told in play script form, um, which ends with the best man, as he is called in the play script, having the bright idea to start a duck farm instead. The 1921 version does away with this epilogue, but it does finish the same way with Euclid's this new idea you very much see the credits rolling at the end there as Euclid starts announcing his new scheme regarding a duck farm maybe I'm confusing this story with Only Fools and Horses or something <laughs> well I suppose he it, it, does it, have similarities with Del Trotter yeah it seems like a, a very sitcom ending and everything's been resolved but then oh, there's more trouble well you could make next a, time you could make a sitcom out of the Euclid short stories they tend to follow the same pattern of a bright idea and then everything ending back where they started yeah I think the ending's interesting because what happened to Phyllis we, we never actually see her again after Garnet goes off to well, I think uh, ask for the, her hand in marriage well, in the 1906 version, we are shown what happens. They get yeah. married, and um, I presume that Woodhouse thought that that was obviously <laughs> going to happen and that we could join the dots for ourselves. Yeah, I took it as right. version. Uh, I, I, I suppose I was expecting that there'd be some token reappearance or the, the reunion of Garnet and Phyllis. I did enjoy the epilogue in the original version, I mm. think, with the old boar and the, all of the different servants and things and everyone's got different priorities. I was childish enough to enjoy the fake Welsh base names which are impossible to pronounce <laughs> but just a sea of consonants but I suppose when he rewrote the book he just thought it received wisdom for 
authors that you don't want to let the ending drag on too long. You want to, once mm. the readers have got the idea of what's happening, you want to wrap it up as quickly as possible. And I think the epilogue in the original version, it ends with Eucridge outlining his new plan for a duck farm as the bridal car is driving away. Mm. Whereas here, Garnet is there with him and I got more of a sense from this that Garnet is going to be drawn into the next scheme as well. Oh, I hadn't thought of that, maybe because I can't remember what I felt when I first read this book. It's one of these books I read along with many other books from... I got it out at the library at some point when I was a child. It's one of many Woodhouse books I was reading, so I don't really remember how I responded to that ending, but... Would you have had the context for it as early Woodhouse when you first read it? Yeah, I think I would have. It does say in the preface, the dedication to Townend, that it's an early novel. But one of the first Woodhouse books I read was A Gentleman of Leisure, which is another very early one. And that is a book I've always loved. So I guess I've always had maybe a higher tolerance level for Woodhouse's early stuff than most people do um, but I think I would have thought that this one was a relatively weak one even then and I certainly think it's a relatively weak one now So Euclid doesn't come back until the 20s in the yeah, late 20s I think or 26 mm. maybe and um, the biographers contend that that was because that was when Westbrook started making a nuisance of himself in Woodhouse's life again <laughs> and it just Oh, what happened to that Eucharist character? Why don't I do more with him? <laughs> Here's some new plot ideas. Mm. Yeah. I was very interested to see, in terms of the sheer length of Woodhouse's career, that the last Eucharist story, Eucharist Starts a Bank Account, was published in Playboy in July 1967 with illustrations by Edward Gorey. And it's just completely different universe from the world of this yeah. Edwardian novel. Though I'm sure Edward Gorey would have liked to have lived in the Edwardian era. Because of his extraordinary long life and career, it does distort the impression I've had of him. I was born in 78. Yeah, so he wasn't long dead when I was a child. So I think of him as a contemporary figure, but he was born in the Victorian era and this book is 120 years old mm. and it's hard for me to I guess it's a sign I'm getting old but it's hard for me <laughs> to reconcile these two but, and the thing is with his early books they are set in the time they're written and I think they're all the better for it like mm. I was saying you get a sense of him observing the world around him and relaying it to us because he's enjoying contemporary slang on incongruously using yeah he's writing he's going about reporting speech down in his notebooks whereas his later books he's not so keen to reflect life as it was because it's too depressing for him <laughs> so he sort of retreats into this sort of slightly adapted version of the stuff he was writing in the Edwardian period mm. it's still an Edwardian world but there's contemporary references because he still wants to be up to date yeah so it's kind of a confusing landscape the later books are set in which this Euclid is introduced in 1906 and lasts for another 60 years that's a good going isn't it and uh, what other 
but 20th century literary characters mm, on a strictly on and off basis though <laughs> it wasn't um, just writing yeah i mean um, how I much euclid did he actually write this uh, is the only novel with euclid in isn't it? i mean agatha christie was actively writing about poirot for a good 50 years yeah, i think yeah, i forgot about her Sorry, what was the question? How much? How much Euclid is there? Is, is it just um, stories other than Love and Liberty? Yes, and there's only one full book of short stories, mm. and then there's some scattered short stories. Yeah, I don't think there can be very many, and he's quite unpopular <laughs> with um, Woodhouse fans, I believe. I mean, he's maybe a love or hate it character. I think some people really love him, but other people don't. I read the first book of Euclid stories and I think I, I I found him a little exasperating there eventually but I did enjoy the sense of him being a wholly destructive force which is uh, the presentation in Love Among the Chickens is, is softer isn't it as you were saying yeah the later Euclid he would have left he would have left mm, um, yes. Garnet to deal with the situation mm. and he w- we wouldn't see him again but it's almost like Woodhouse can't bear that anyone should think that badly of anyone so he says no. oh let's let's no he was only <laughs> i think i was expecting euclid to be more amoral and garnet to be more the straight man so then the scene where they are interrupting the professor's morning swim to ask for phyllis's hand in marriage garnet is equally as we were saying garnet's as unhelpful as euclid yeah think it probably reflects their relationship that Woodhouse and Westbrook had at that time not to kind of buy in too much to the autobiographical explanation for everything well I'm glad you've read the uh, some other Euclid stories so you've got something to compare it to because otherwise I wouldn't really know what you'd make of Euclid in this story like why why is this of the breakout character (laughs) I think I saw uh, interview a few years ago with Richard Ayoade and he said that he'd only recently been introduced to P.G. Woodhouse and he'd been particularly enjoying the Euclid stories and I think that made me think oh I've never read any of the Euclid I should check it out but maybe he was just saying that to sound cool because he's one of the the more obscure Woodhouse No I can see why you would like him because he offers something different there's a quite a coziness to a lot of Woodhouse stories, mm. and you, if you like some your humour a bit more, a bit more of an edge to it, then I yeah. can see why you'd appreciate a find you could a bit of breath of fresh air in his utter amorality <laughs> and ruthlessness. Maybe if you were coming to Woodhouse later on in life, and you might have been put off by preconceived ideas about this cozy universe, then yeah, that might be more appealing. In the later Euclid stories, they they are also narrated in the first person, but they're narrated by somebody else called uh, Corky Corcoran, who is a very similar character to Jeremy Garnet, really. So the question is, is it the same character under a different name? And if so, why did he bother to change the name? <laughs> and are these stories... Because in the short stories, there's no Millie in those. Are the short stories set before he met Millie, are they set after she's died or is are they set in an alternative universe where she never existed <laughs> I, I think mean she barely, did, she barely existed in this book I think Woodhouse did kind of regard this book as his part of his juvenilia and was therefore at liberty to ignore things that happened in it 
it's fair game to ignore and that's why he felt that he could just leave Millie out in future and yes it, that we don't lose anything from that I think it's probably easier for her to be kept as a minor character because otherwise it would be causing problems trying to explain exactly why this woman would choose to stay with this man Mm. But again, it's exactly the same dynamic as in that Arthur Conan Doyle story, mm. which is more than just the character of Collingworth stroke Eucharist itself. It's that relationship that makes me think he was definitely influenced by that novel. So that was my conversation with the very erudite Tom Robinson about Love Among the Chickens. I really enjoyed that. Thanks very much to Tom. Thanks also to Acast, Woodhouse Scholars and Authors, and to all you wonderful listeners. Please spread the word about the show if you like it, and feel free to follow the show on social media. I'll be back next time with the Kid Brady short stories. And now, as promised, here's Tom to play you out. If there is one person I dislike, it is the man who tries to air his grievances when I wish to air mine. P.G. Woodhouse, Love Among the Chickens.